Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Aron. And I'm Nicole. And today, your questions answered with Q&A. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 90 of the Eat Right Nutrition podcast. Today, we are doing a Q&A based on the questions you asked on Instagram. So we'll be following up with some of those answers. And Nicole? Mm-hmm. Jerome. Shall we get right into it? Sure. Okay. So we posted a Q&A on Instagram and some of you guys filled up that form. So thank you for filling that out. And the first question we're going to answer today, Nicole, I'm going to hand this off to you for you to kick off. Why is it hard to lose weight during menopause? Okay. So menopause is a difficult time for the female body. Our hormones are starting to slow down. We're losing our menstrual cycle and a lot of things happen during that time that make it a little bit harder for our body to create weight loss or fat loss, but it's not impossible. So let me first start off by saying that I don't think it's impossible for women to change their body during menopause. I think it's a little bit more difficult because of three main things. And I'll start with the first one is accepting that you're actually going through the change. And I know that sounds really silly, but a lot of women, a lot of the times will want to, you know, we want, we don't want it to happen. We don't want to accept that we're getting a little older and that our bodies are changing. So the first piece to that is to, to accept the fact that this is where we are. It's natural part of life. It's going to happen. So instead of resisting it, like everything that we talk about a lot, I'd rather you be empowered by it and pay attention to your body's biofeedback, which is the second piece. And the biofeedbacks are things like sleep, mood, hunger, energy, cravings, your ability to work out when you are deprived of sleep because insomnia is probably one of, I think, the biggest things that I find. Different levels of hunger and cravings because we start to, our hunger hormone starts to change. So there's this huge kind of ricochet of effect as our hormones drop, which is what happens during menopause, our cycles start to change. And so therefore our biofeedback become very different and our bodies are changing and it's something that you have to pay more attention to. So I don't think it's difficult to lose weight. I think it's difficult to accept that your body is in a different stage in life. And so you have to pay attention to the biofeedback and how that affects the way we function in our lifestyle. The third thing is to connect with your doctor and make sure you're getting your blood work done. So you understand exactly what's going on with your hormones and make sure that you're having that communication with your doctor. Some women will use HRTs to help them through the process, which is a hormone replacement therapy. Some women will focus more from a holistic standpoint on lifestyle and food and exercise and sleep and different types of supplements that can help them through. But ultimately the bottom line is you just want to make sure you're really accepting the fact that your body is in a different state. So you can't do what you did in your 30s and your 20s when you're in perimenopause, maybe in 40 and you're heading into menopause in 50. You have to start to think differently, pay attention to what your body's going through and make the appropriate changes. So I would say those three things are the biggest. 
Yeah, that's all great. Nicole, I think the biofeedback is one of the most important things. And we did that like two or three episodes ago. And I think Mm -hmm. in general, it's important to with any diet and exercise plan or nutrition plan and lifestyle plan, it's really important to look at biofeedback and assess what's going on. Because like you mentioned, with the lack of sleep can come changes in like you you can have a chain reaction of things, right? So like you right. have the lack of sleep that can lead to uh, cravings for certain foods and you can also that can affect your workout performance. So it's exactly. important to look at those things and say, OK, well, what is the root of everything? Where does the chain reaction start and how do I tackle and address that? And if you need to tra- tackle that with your coach or tackle that with your doctor, that's an important aspect of it. The other aspect that I wanted to talk about is the physiological aspect and what's going on when we look at overall kind of blanket what's going on with women in general during this time. So when we look at menopause, what the studies show is that you get about a 100 to 200 calorie decrease in your basal metabolic rate. That's not that drastic for you to look at it and say, I can't lose weight. I just can't do it. Like this menopause is screwing me up because hundred to 200 calories. I look at that and I'm like, that's a few bites of something. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that I look at is just from overall looking at studies. And I'm pretty sure this came from, don't quote me on this, but I think this came from the journal of nature where they did a study looking at metabolism overall from ages 20 to 60. And they found no significant changes in that age range. And I really want to bring up that point because I think oftentimes we want to blame our metabolism for things and say that as we age, whether you go through menopause at 40, 50, or 60, you're not having drastic changes in your metabolic rate. I think where the miss is, is that the drastic changes that happen is if you compare a 20-year-old to a 30 or 40 or 50-year-old, your lifestyle changes at 20 years old, you can work out freely. You have more time. You have less stress. You're less sedentary. Mm -hmm. You're, you're likely moving around more. And as you age and you have to work and you have more responsibilities, you have higher stress levels, you have less movement. So you're not really focusing on that non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And I think it's important to acknowledge that and to really look at it from a realistic lens and say, okay, well, what's changed from my earlier days when I was leaner to now. And now I'm adding, you know, all the effects and the biofeedback that I'm getting in terms of going through menopause. So what actions do I need to take? Exactly. The other piece that I'll bring up is insulin sensitivity, insulin resistance. Nicole, you and I talked about this a little bit offline in terms of uh, the changes in insulin sensitivity that you may have uh, either going through menopause or postmenopausal. You know, when we look at that 100 to 200 calorie decrease in your basal metabolic rate, maybe you want to decrease that 100 to 200 calories in carbohydrates, or maybe you want to increase your activity level. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to note that insulin sensitivity is largely in your control. And there are studies when we look at step count, for example, when we look at how many steps somebody's getting in a day, let's say it's 2000 or 3000 or even 5000, a 1000 step jump from where you are. So, you know, like, like we always say, like, where's your baseline and let's incrementally bring you up a 1000 step increase has a significant impact on your insulin sensitivity. The other piece that's also going to have a significant impact on your insulin sensitivity is how you're structuring your carbohydrates. So for example, are you having the same number of carbohydrates each day? Are you having the same number of carbohydrates on a meal to meal basis? Are you Mm -hmm. structuring carbohydrates post-workout or pre-workout? How are you doing that? 
generally what the data shows is that insulin sensitivity and controlling blood glucose and controlling A1C, it's favored by consistent carbohydrate feedings throughout the day. So if you, for example, have 80 grams in one meal, 100 grams in another, 30 grams in another meal, 20 grams in another meal, that might not be optimal for you. You may have a better outcome in terms of insulin sensitivity, insulin resistance. If you're consistently consuming, let's say anywhere from 30 to 40 or 50 grams of carbohydrate, depending on how you're breaking it down and how many carbohydrates you need for the day, uh, breaking it down evenly throughout the day and just structuring it, not in terms of really what your carb source is, but more so in terms of how you're balancing each meal and the macronutrient distribution from a meal to meal basis. So that's something that you'll want to look at. You also want to look at your movement and your steps. The other piece is you'll want to look at your protein intake and how much resistance training you're doing, because that, that 100 to 200 calorie difference, you can make up for that by putting five to 10 more pounds of muscle on your frame. Mm -hmm. And now you've increased your BMR by a few hundred calories by just holding more muscle on your frame. So it's definitely doable. And I think Nicole, the last piece that I want to bring into this is there's not so much change in the ability to put on fat. I think there's a misconception there because of all, you know, we look at all the things that we just talked about. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the biggest things that changes especially postmenopausal is the distribution of fat. Right. So generally speaking, estrogen drives fat to be distributed in your butt and your thighs. And then when you lose estrogen, as you go through menopause, you have a redistribution into the midsection. So you may not be storing more fat, but the distribution might change and you may notice it more. So that's mm-hmm. something to keep in mind. And like I said, the activity doing the resistance training, increasing your basal metabolic rate, focusing on things that are going to uh, decrease insulin resistance or increase insulin sensitivity, however you want to look at it. Those are all important things. But, you know, like I said, there's, there's not much change in your metabolic rate as you're going through the process or as you're aging in general. Um, And it's, it's important to note that you definitely, Nicole, like you said, you want to manage the symptoms. Mm-hmm. And you want to be able to look at your body from a biofeedback standpoint and then still be able to train and do the things that you need to do to get where you're going along the way. Yes, absolutely. All right, Nicole, on to the next one. Okay. So the next question is, does the type of fiber you eat matter? And is all fiber the same? Yes and no. I'm going to let you take this one. Go. All right. So in looking at fiber, I'm going to bring up uh, three different things here. I'm going to bring up uh, insoluble fiber. We're going to talk about soluble fiber, and then we're going to talk about resistant starch, uh, which is kind of uh, made in a certain way, which kind of acts like soluble fiber. So we'll touch up on insoluble fiber first. And the first thing I'll say in regards to insoluble fiber is so insoluble fiber are things like cellulose. Like we will get, see those in like, um, different plant sources. We'll see them in fruit skins, fruits and vegetables, things of that sort. Uh, and essentially what happens with insoluble fiber is its role is, and it's called insoluble because it's not soluble in water. Its role is to reduce intestinal transit time. And because it does that, it decreases the risk of colon cancer. And what we find with fiber, specifically insoluble fiber, is the gram number for every 10 grams of fiber that you eat, uh, you have a significant decrease in your relative risk for colon cancer. 
Um, so that's kind of insoluble fiber in a nutshell. It kind of just helps to uh, push things through, move things along, uh, clean out the the walls of your intestines and reduce transit time. So move things along your digestive tract quicker. The other type of fiber that I want to talk about is the soluble fiber. And there's different types of soluble fiber. You have uh, beta glucans that you'll find in oats and things like mushrooms. You have naturally occurring gums such as guar gum and carrageenan that's found in seaweed. And then you also have inulin, which is found in things like uh, wheat, like inulin enriched wheat flour or garlic or onions. Now, beta glucans are shown to have a pretty big impact in terms of being cardioprotective. Uh, and this is one of those things, Nicole, where we talk about things like Cheerios and the label on Cheerios that has the, uh, the heart on it with the American Heart Association logo, which, you know, I kind of don't really agree with that logo being on there. And I'll give you the reason why, but essentially what happens with these beta glucans and this type of soluble fiber is it'll bind to cholesterol in your digestive tract and help to push it out of the system. So any cholesterol that you're eating in that meal, it's going to help to kind of move that out of your digestive tract. It's also going to affect your bile production. Uh, so this is going to be really cardioprotective and help to lower your LDL, which is your quote unquote kind of bad cholesterol. The reason why I'm kind of not too keen on the whole Cheerios thing is because we have to look at it in context. So the reason why certain cereals or certain products like Cheerios earns that American Heart Association logo is because it, there's kind of like a correlation here. So they say, well, fiber or soluble fiber decreases the risk for heart disease because, you know, of all the things that I just mentioned and Cheerios contains fiber. Therefore, Cheerios must be heart healthy and reduce cholesterol. It's kind of like an A plus B equals C. It's like a correlation, not really a causation. They're just tying it to fiber and saying, well, fiber's in this, so it'll do that. The issue I have with that statement is when we look at the typical Western diet and Nicole, when we look at things like portion distortion, where mm -hmm. people will not even look at how much a portion is of Cheerios. And instead of pouring three fourths of a cup, which is usually about 30 to 40 grams of carbs, they mm -hmm. pour about five times that amount mm -hmm. and overeating things can create an inflammatory environment in your body, over consuming calories, over consuming carbohydrates, especially in a single meal that can create an issue where you have an inflammatory environment and that can be negative on that cardioprotective effect, right? So that can negate that cardioprotective effect. So I don't really like that there's lack of context there. I do but think- But it sells cereal, Darone. Yeah, I mean, I guess it does, but you know, there's there are tons of different ways to approach it, obviously. <laughs> so, you know, it is what it is on that end, but that's how I feel about that. Um, but- Going back to the types of fiber, uh, inulin is unique in that we find a huge impact on healthy gut bacteria when consuming inulin. Specifically, when we look at soluble fiber in general, uh, we see changes in gut permeability, specifically with inulin. There's, there's more research to kind of say, hey, like inulin's really the one as of right now. And what I mean by that is essentially what happens is when you look at fibers, your digestive tract cannot break it down. And the reason for that is because we lack the enzyme to break down the bonds between the starch or between the sugar molecules of these chains that we call fiber. 
And so what happens is this goes through your digestive system. It goes into your stomach and your small intestine. It ends up in your colon and inside of your colon, the good bacteria will feed off of that. And as a result, create short chain fatty acids. These short chain fatty acids are butyrate, propionate, and acetate. And butyrate is shown to have a really protective effect on your body. So butyrate's role is in providing, first off, providing energy to colonocytes. So you have healthy cells inside of your colon. Butyrate also helps to modulate your immune system by modulating immune cells that are kind of near your, uh, near your colon on the inside through that barrier. The other thing that butyrate helps to do is it helps to activate GLP-2, which is glucagon-like peptide 2, which helps with cellular proliferation. So you have newer vibrant cells. And this is where we find digestive benefits, health benefits, immune system benefits to specifically consuming soluble fiber. And these are things that you're not going to get with insoluble fiber because insoluble fiber, it's not your, the bacteria in your gut's not going to feed off of that. It wants the soluble fiber. So it's important to get a mixture of both things for the reasons that I just mentioned. And the third thing that I want to touch up on is resistant starch. So when you look at different starches, um, starches have different percentage compositions of amylose and amylopectin. And those are just different starch chains. So essentially with amylopectin, it's kind of like a picture, like a, a straight line with like a few branches coming off of it, like kind of like a tree branch. Those branches have multiple different ends where you can have enzymes that will come in and break down those a lot relatively quicker than an amylose chain. And the reason why it breaks it down quicker than an amylose chain is because amylose is a straight chain. And you can only pull off of each two ends versus multiple ends. And so some of these resistant starches that are high in amylose, for example, if you look at potatoes, if you look at uh, certain types of beans, if you look at rice, those things, what will happen is they have a high amylose concentration. And what happens is when you cook them and then cool them, you create what's known as resistant starches. And these resistant starches are created because the amylose chains on each end of that chain of that starch, when it cools, you'll form crystalline-like regions that are resistant to digestion by the starch digesting enzymes in our body. So cooking and cooling certain starches creates a resistant starch, and that will end up in your colon and it will act just like the soluble fiber and feed the good bacteria and create all the things that we mentioned when it comes to soluble fiber. So there are, to answer your question in short, there are different types of fiber. I don't think that you need to worry about consuming different types of fiber, like how much of each. I think we just need to vary our food, get a ton of fruits and vegetables in, get a lot of different whole grains in, get oats, get rice things of that sort. And this is kind of Nicole, like, this is what kind of pisses me off when it comes to like people talking about yep, oh, well, whole, whole grains are bad for you. Yeah. And, and taking whole categories of foods away yeah, from your I mean, meal plan. We've got all this information on the benefits and yeah, listen, there are pros and cons to every food and on an individual basis, just like Nicole always says on the show, mm -hmm. it's individualized. And we have to take it on a case by case basis. Maybe you can't digest FODMAPs. Maybe there are certain foods you should avoid. But overall, we've got a huge body of research supporting that whole grains are good for you. Fruits and vegetables are good for you. And uh, I, I just think it's, you know, I'll well, just I leave always it say that. 
Yeah, well, yeah. One last thing. I always say to 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 when we I always say to clients when we talk about stuff like this, a healthy gut and a healthy body can digest everything. It's only when things become disrupted or compromised that you can't digest things. So you have to be really aware of what you're cutting out and for what reasons. Like if you aren't someone that has issues with certain types of starches or fiber and you take them out, you can actually cause more problems than need to be if you just allot your body what it needs and stop worrying about what you think you should and shouldn't eat or what people on Instagram tell you you should and shouldn't eat. Word. (laughs) All right. So we'll move along. Yeah. All right, Nicole, this is the one that I found riveting. Yes, you did. (laughs) I really like this question. I really like looking into it. Sometimes you guys ask questions that I need to dive into and jump into the research. And I really sometimes I think it's just common sense. But but, yeah, Nicole thought Nicole thought this one was common sense. um, But I see the chain of of events that lead to this this thought process. Mm -hmm. So this next question is, why doesn't meat have carbs? And the thought process to get there is meat is muscle tissue. Muscle contains glycogen. Glycogen is stored sugar. So, I mean, the first thing I'll say there is glycogen is technically stored starch, uh, which is a chain of sugars. And glycogen is kind of similar to that amylopectin that we talked about. And the reason why glycogen is formed that way, just like amylopectin, is because it makes for a quicker source of fuel for your muscles and for your liver to regulate blood sugar and do all the things that it needs to do. Uh, as opposed to if that chain was a straight chain and it was amylose, it would be a lot slower source of fuel because you'd only be able to pull enzymes on each side of that straight chain. So you have that branch chain, uh, which is uh, a molecule of glycogen and you have many of them, a lot of them in your liver, and you've got them in your muscle for the activities of, of day to day. But going back to the question is why doesn't meat have carbs? There is something called postmortem caloricity. And what this is, is it's described as a rise in temperature after death due to continued cellular oxidation. So when you die, you're still going through these metabolic processes and you have something called postmortem glycogenolysis. Glycogen being glycogen and lysis being breakdown. So glycogenolysis is breakdown of glycogen. Postmortem glycogenolysis begins soon after death. It's observed in nearly all cadavers. And in this, we're talking about humans here. Uh, In an average adult, postmortem glycogenolysis can produce up to 140 calories of heat, which can raise the temperature of the body by up to two degrees Celsius. So when we look at a cold, dead body, it actually increases in temperature before it decreases in temperature. And what happens is, uh, and this is from a study on rats, uh, postmortem glycogenolysis and hydrolysis has a rapid onset. Most likely, I my guess is that this is due to the stress of the animal dying, or it depends on how the animal died. And so you have this rapid onset of postmortem glycogenolysis, and then it slows down after a period of time. In all tissues, glycogen was degraded rapidly and accompanied by an increase in tissue glucose and lactate concentrations and a lowering of tissue pH. So this is where you see if you're going through um, glycolysis or glycogenolysis, you see the byproducts or waste products uh, being lactate and you see an increase in acidity or a decrease in pH in the tissue. And that kind of gives you clues to hey, metabolism was still occurring. 
and here are the byproducts and the waste products. So the answer is that you have a rapid increase in glycogenolysis post-mortem. Makes sense to me. Excellent question. I Yeah, re- pretty cool. I thoroughly enjoyed that. I thought that was cool. I thought it was very morbid, but it was an excellent question. <laughs> well, because when I was like looking into it, I saw like human cadavers and all this stuff. So yeah. um, really cool question. Really cool answer. And let's go on to the next one. Okay, what's next? So the next one is, is it true you can grow muscle faster slash better by hitting the same muscle twice a week? For this one, Nicole, I'm going to reference a meta-analysis done by Brad Schoenfeld. The effects of resistance training frequency on measures of muscle hypertrophy, a systematic review and meta-analysis. And I believe this was 2016. So the conclusion of the study states, when comparing studies that investigated training muscle groups between one to three days per week on a volume equated basis, the current body of evidence indicates that frequencies of training twice a week promote superior hypertrophic outcomes to once a week. So I just want to kind of elaborate on that a little bit. Volume equated basis, essentially what we're looking at here is if you were to do, let's say a chest workout on Monday and you were to do 20 sets of chest on Monday versus doing 20 total sets in a week, but breaking it up into 10 on Monday and 10 on Thursday, Mm -hmm. which one's going to have the better outcome. And what this study is showing is that you have a better outcome of increasing muscle protein synthesis uh, when you have the same volume split up into two separate sessions. I actually like this question just from a research standpoint. We know that to be true, but I also like challenging clients when they ask, which is better. Like, have you done both? Have you ever tried to do like a chest day on Monday only and do that for six weeks and then kind of test the theory out on yourself, then split that up and do it twice a week and see how your body reacts and how you feel and see for yourself what, what the changes or differences are, because I love the proof is in the pudding type concepts. And I think it's really interesting to see how your body changes in response to things. Yeah. And I will say that Nicole, we're talking typical bro splits here versus the, uh, you know, doing things multiple times a week and all throughout my bodybuilding, all I did was bro splits. And in hindsight, I, you know, you, you'll still get the result by training. I was going to say you still got, you still created change. So yes, but would I have created the change more efficiently? Right. So yeah. Would if it's basically saying, will I get there in six months or eight months? Yeah. Is is really what that's saying, right? Will I get there quicker and more efficiently? You will get there, but it's probably more efficient to do it twice a week. The other piece that I'll say uh, is that we don't know, according to this research, if three times a week would be better than twice a week. That's still to be determined. But what we do know is that multiple times per week is going to increase muscle protein synthesis at multiple points throughout the week. So you're going to get a better outcome. So instead of doing chest on one day, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe do chest and back and chest and back. And then you're doing, yeah, push, pull and push, pull. And Mm -hmm. then, uh, I mean, listen, I look at it like shoulders, for example, I still only train once a week because I don't think I need them to grow. Well, that's, I was just going to say that about like my lower body, I train three times a week. Yeah. So it's, it's going to be, obviously it's going to be on an individual basis, right? Like when we're looking at research, we're saying, Hey, what works for the majority of the population? And it's up to you to make that decision on what's going to work more efficiently for you. But overall training a muscle twice a week versus once a week is going to induce more muscle protein synthesis. And you're probably going to grow better. Yeah. 
So get your workouts in. Multiple times. Multiple times Multiple a week. Times. All right. <laughs> On to the All next right. one. If you don't eat meat, what are some important supplements to take? You're rolling you should, your eyes at me. First of all, you should be eating meat, but well, that's so another topic. <laughs> I'll, I'll say this. I'll say uh, we are oh, our job here is to help you optimize the the plan that you have. And regardless right. of what your beliefs are around that, listen, I, I always say this when it comes to vitamin B12. This is the first one that I'm going to talk about nature. If it's natural to be a vegan, nature wouldn't deprive you of things that are essential nutrients that your body needs. And I always say like, okay, well, if you're deficient in vitamin B12, that's not the natural diet that humans are supposed to have. And I've never seen a tree that grows B12 capsules, right? (laughs) You have to take it in supplement form. So if you have to take it in supplement form, it's probably not the optimal diet for you. Um, But I do support people in their endeavors and figure out how to optimize. I've worked with many vegan and vegetarian clients and we figure out how to Mm -hmm. optimize their current plan. So yep. what I'll say is first and foremost, you need to have some labs done and you need to see if you're actually deficient in things. And I'll say there is a mm-hmm. vegan argument here where they say, well, just eat unwashed fruit because bacteria produces B12 and then you'll have B12 in your unwashed fruit. And I'm like, that's not significant enough to even make a difference. Dude, where so, do people come up with some of this stuff? I don't know, but it's one of the biggest arguments on the vegan really? side. Yeah, it's one of the biggest. There's so many articles on it. You can Google it and you'll find it everywhere. I'm not even going to waste my time Googling it. So I'll take your word for it. What I will say is get your lab work done and see if you're B12 deficient. If you're B12 deficient, that's one of the nutrients that you get only from animal and animal byproducts. Again, mm-hmm. like I said, even if you get a little bit from unwashed fucking fruit, that's not going to be enough. And then if you're deficient, you want to supplement with B12. Uh, the type of B12, I always say methylcobalamin because some people do have a genetic uh, a genetic mutation in which they cannot methylate certain vitamins. So it'd be wise to just, you know, blanket statement. Everybody should just take uh, methylcobalamin. It's a little bit more expensive, but it's a better quality product in terms of bioavailability. The other thing that I'd say to look at is iron because you have heme iron and non-heme iron and heme iron is found in animal products and non-heme iron is found in plants and the heme iron is more bioavailable. So if you're not eating animals, you might have less bioavailability of your iron that you're getting in. Um, What I'll say is this one is super important for you to get labs on. I never personally recommend that people take iron. I always refer to a physician for that and say, get your lab work done. And the reason being is because If you have too much iron in your system, you can store iron in certain places like your liver, your heart, your joints, and you can get joint pain. Uh, And you can also have uh, iron has a very high affinity to oxidation and that can wreak havoc on your system. So make sure you're deficient. Don't just take the supplement. The other piece that I would look at is omega-3 because there aren't, there are some plant sources of omega-3 fatty acids, fish oil, obviously, and eating fish is the top one because you have EPA and DHA. You also have flax seeds and chia seeds, which are very high in omega-3, but they're high in ALA, so they're not as bioavailable. So what I typically recommend, if you're a vegan and you're not open to doing fish oil, I typically recommend doing sea algae supplements that are high in EPA and DHA and not just ALA because the conversion from ALA into active EPA DHA uh, is far lower than uh, what you would get by just consuming EPA and DHA. So bioavailability purposes, I would say algae supplements 
And the last thing that I would say, if you're not eating meat is you have to look at it from a standpoint of bioavailability of the protein that you're eating. So animal products, and I hate to break the news to you, but animal products are far more uh, superior in terms of the amino acid composition. And they, the gram for gram amount that you have to get in to equal, like if your goal is to increase lean mass and, and really optimize muscle protein synthesis, which is the goal of a lot of our audience and a lot of people that listen to our podcast, if that's your goal, you want to look at optimizing that. And you may have to take a higher, take in a higher gram number total from plant sources than you would from animal sources. And that's because of the difference in bioavailability. Now, what I'll say is you want to vary your plant sources of protein. You want grains, you want things like quinoa, you want things like uh, beans and lentils so that you have that kind of crossover of the amino acids and you have a full spectrum. Uh, but in addition to that, if you take your total caloric intake for the day, you may have to have a higher percentage of your calories coming from protein so that that can be equivalent to the lower percentage from your calories coming from protein if you were eating meat, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah. At the equal to equal. Yeah. You may just have to take in a higher amount of protein, but I would equate for it in percentage because you don't want to have to eat more calories to get in that right. protein. Right. Exactly. On to the next one, Nicole. Yes. So the next one is thoughts on collagen peptide supplements and the collagen peptide supplements. I do think that they have their place. Uh, I think that there's some research to support them. Uh, when we're looking at the difference between collagen peptides and something like whey protein, we're looking at different goals, essentially. So something like uh, whey protein or animal-based protein, if you're looking to maximize muscle growth, you're going to want things that are high in branched-chain amino acids, like whey protein is very high in leucine, valine, and isoleucine, and leucine being an amino acid that really stimulates muscle protein synthesis and is really beneficial for building muscle. However, collagen peptides are, they contain diff a different amino acid profile. So kind of think about it like this. Uh, your muscle is made up of branched chain amino acids predominantly. So when you eat muscle and animal products, you get a lot of those and your skin, your hair, your nails, your joint tissue, connective tissue is made up more so of glycine, proline, hydroxyproline, and alanine. And those are going to be beneficial for, for example, there's research on wrinkle depth. If that's something that you're concerned with, we see reduction in wrinkle depth with supplementation of collagen peptides. Uh, we also see there was a specific study I can think of with um, an Achilles tendon injury and recovery from that and, uh, you know, being able to recover efficiently and taking collagen peptide supplements are going to aid with that. Uh, so injury recovery and wrinkle depth are two areas there. And what I will say is specifically for women, women tend to deplete collagen earlier than men do. So it may, it may be something that they may, may be concerned with. Uh, and then the other piece is in terms of overall collagen production and your body producing its own collagen is supplementing with vitamin C is helpful in mm. getting your body to create its own collagen. I love collagen peptides. I think it's interesting with collagen that uh, for all the females out there, literally you can't walk through a beauty, you know, supply store or a makeup aisle without seeing 
Um, collagen is literally in everything now. It's in lotions. It's in um, foundation, makeup foundation. It's um, you could get like a collagen facial. So from you know a skin standpoint, it's it's literally in every product that we have now. So uh, aside from taking a supplement from a di- and digesting it, topical use, I guess. Yeah. And it's interesting. Listen, collagen has been a hot topic for a few years. I do think Mm -hmm. that it has its place. I do think that it definitely has its benefits. Um, What I'll say is I'm not sure of the difference in bioavailability and how much you absorb topically versus Mm -hmm. ingesting it. So I'd I'd be curious to see some information on that. Yeah. I use collagen peptides, but I also, I do have skin creams that have it in it. And I will say this, it does feel good on your skin. So maybe it, it might not be as bioavailable, but it definitely feels good. It makes your skin feel good, which for females, it does feel good to feel good. Just saying. It always feels good to feel good. <laughs> I think I'll, I'll never know anything about that because I'll probably never <laughs> use facial whatever products, but. Oh my God. Collagen facials for the ladies. If you haven't tried one, you definitely should. It feels great. Well, what about the men? Well, you said you would never do it. Are you supposed to sell me here? Oh, <laughs> Your skin is fabulous, Sterone. You're fine. No, well, I think it's also interesting you say that females lose our skin elasticity faster um, in the aging process. So I think it's that's the reason why women are so, you know, fixated. We're trying to, you know, look good and feel good as we age. So it's probably more of a, a you know, worry for us or a concern for us. I'm not going to say what I was thinking. <laughs> what are you going to say? That's why uh, uh, men men t- tend to uh, get better. They're like wine. They get better with age. They look better with uh, age. Har, like- har, har, har. <laughs> well, you also have a beard. So you listen like that's a that you cover up a lot of your your skin and your face. Yeah. But like if I have wrinkles, it's not on my where my beard is. It's well, like, like you're talking like, like for you, whatever. it'd be like forehead or crow's feet. Yeah. Yeah. That's all right. Or, I will, call them, we'll what do they you- call them? Uh, 11s. Yeah. Right in the right in the middle. That's in what the I middle. have. I have one of them. I don't have an eleven. I have a one. You have a one. You're starting. Yeah. You might want to start getting collagen facials. This, this is my selling point right I, now. I you're... really, I really try not to. <laughs> you're probably right, and I try not to. Um, I try when I get stressed out, I squint, and it like kind of. I feel like it deepens that, and I try yeah. to really keep. I try to be conscious of that because of it is something. It That's is hilarious. yeah. It is something that kind of gets to me sometimes when I look at it after like a stressful week. It's like really mm-hmm. deep, and then I'm like trying to like rub it out. And <laughs> <laughs> I love, I you know, with all my friends, we talk about smile lines. Like I'd rather have smile lines and know that I've had a happy, like healthy expressions to my face. I don't really want to turn it all that off. So I'd rather I not it- have any lines like I there my really the cam- you don't want yeah. any lines as you age so my my you know camera, that's impossible right my camera has a setting <laughs> where it like smooths you into like baby face and I'm like I'm all about I'm using that setting you're all right? about the filters you Jerome can, you can see you can actually see in some of the videos I am dying Instagram, you can see with like the the backdrop the wooden backdrop that I have yeah 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 see in some of the videos the wooden backdrop looks a little bit more smoothed out in some videos than others yeah. because I use that filter setting you on are killing me I didn't realize you were a filter person oh I, you know I, I I just looked at the difference and you could set it on the camera and see it yeah and I yeah. looked at the difference and I was like yeah I'm definitely using this filter <laughs> That's hilarious. You right. cracking me up. Anyway, moving along. <laughs> next the, question. The next question is, how do you know how many calories to eat in a day? 
So mm-hmm. there's there are two things that you want to kind of look at here. And Nicole, I'll let you start with that first piece and then I'll jump into formulas and equations. Okay. Well, so basically how you figure out how many calories you need to eat in a day versus what you're currently eating is basically the starting point. So uh, what I usually do is if someone's using um, an app like MyFitnessPal or even if they're writing things down on a sheet of paper, I have them just track. I do it for 14 days um, and track. I zero out in something like MyFitnessPal. I take calories and macros numbers away so that they're not trying to hit a specific goal. I just want them to eat what they normally eat, how they normally function and not change anything. So we can get a baseline of what they're currently eating. And then to, I know you're going to talk about equations. Then we, then I'll take what they are currently doing and, and use an equation to figure out what their maintenance really is. And then I kind of adjust and alter what I need to based on that. Because one of the things that I think is really important about finding out how many calories you need versus what you're currently eating is that you don't need to you know, reinvent the wheel. You want to find out what's working really well in your food plan. Maybe you're hitting adequate amount of protein. Maybe you're not. So that's something you want to figure out within the calorie structure of what you have. And then if you're, if you are eating too many calories, how much are you going over and, you know, and what sources can you change? Can you clean things up, which will naturally bring your calories down with food choices and things like that. So Nicole, you're referencing the uh, finding out what you're currently taking in because technically speaking, if you're maintaining your weight at your current amount of calories that you're getting in, then that is considered your current maintenance. And then what we would do is we'd compare that to either a Mifflin equation or Katz-McArdle. Nicole, I know you really like to use that one. Uh, Mm -hmm. The difference between the two is going to be whether or not you have access to body fat. Katz-McArdle uses body fat. Uh, Mifflin equation doesn't. There is an option to use uh, the Katz-McArdle without body fat. You get a little bit more accuracy with body fat um, because then you're accounting for muscle, obviously, and lean lean mass. So typically, like I like to use the Mifflin equation because usually our clients, a lot of our clients are virtual, so we don't really have access to body fat with all of our clients. Uh, and with the, with that, I just go to like calculator.net and I use their BMR calculator. And that is a Mifflin equation. So essentially what you'll do with both of these equations, you'll plug in your height, your weight, your age, uh, and your level of your level of activity and your gender. And uh, with the level of activity, it'll give you your maintenance calories. Without the level of activity, it'll give you your basal metabolism, which is how many calories you burn at rest. Mm-hmm. And you'll be, essentially what you'll do is you'll compare what your current intake is with what your estimated is. I will say it's not a perfect system. Us as coaches, we have to kind of make a judgment call. Sometimes if you have a higher Mm -hmm. body fat percentage and you're a larger individual, typically it'll give you too many calories. So Mm -hmm. we do have to make judgment calls on that. And then in terms of what, how many calories you should eat, if you take that theoretical maintenance and you give yourself a two to 500 calorie surplus, if your goal is to increase lean muscle, or a two, 200 to 500 calorie deficit if your goal is to lose body fat. Essentially, what you have to do is you have to live in that maintenance for a period of time. Yes. And then you have to assess, okay, where do I want to go from here depending on my goal? Do I want to go up or down? And I want to gradually start taking it down until I hit that sweet spot where I'm losing body fat. Mm-hmm. It's not a perfect system, but it gives you theoretically a, a good starting point and a good baseline. Yeah, Exactly. All right. So next question, Nicole, is there a specific time to supplement with magnesium? Well, I, well, you go ahead at night. 
that's my answer. yeah so overall what i'd say is at night because typically when we're recommending somebody take magnesium it's usually for sleep to help regulate your sleep wake cycle and it's usually magnesium glycinate uh if it's for things like anxiety depression it's magnesium three and eight because that can cross the blood brain barrier i typically say take it in the evening with meals uh, that's where you'll get the highest bioavailability it's important that you take it consistently because magnesium is one of those things that you want to build up over time but I will say for another reason why somebody might take magnesium is as a laxative intentionally. And then in that case, you would be taking magnesium oxide. And now magnesium oxide, you don't really want to take with a meal because then you'll have that meal and you'll have a laxative effect and that'll just make matters worse for you. Um, usually if somebody's dealing with like constipation, you may be able to take magnesium as a laxative. You take magnesium oxide. And the reason why it has that laxative effect uh, is because of partly because of the lower bioavailability and hangs out in the gut and draws water in. Uh, and then you end up uh, with a softer stool. Um, but in general, uh, for magnesium, I generally say take it in the evening, 30 minutes, an hour before you go to bed, and it's going to help you with your sleep. That's usually why we're recommending magnesium. And then the last question, Nicole, is yep. what's your favorite supplement brand? And I will say uh, it depends what we're looking at here. So from a standpoint of either supplement cocktails, like mixes that the companies will put together, or from a standpoint of adaptogens or herbs or just overall vitamins and minerals, Thorn Research is a big one. Designs for Health is another one. And Pure Encapsulations, those are really my top three for um, herbal or adaptogens or vitamins and minerals. I will say that I favor designs for health in terms of like, we just brought up magnesium, uh, designs for health has a pill form of magnesium glycinate, whereas thorn research has a powdered form. And I don't, I don't prefer the powdered form. Um, I'd rather just, I do. Uh, Nicole does. I'd rather just swallow a, a bunch of pills, but Nicole, you said that the uh, powder, you just feel better with the powdered forms, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I love thorn thorn is my all time favorite. That's where I get all my stuff from. And I like it because they have powdered form. So it's funny because everybody's different. And this is another, you know, reason to look in and research that where you're getting your supplements from depends on kind of how you want to use them. I like just from a powder form, I can put them in, you know, protein shakes. I can put them in yogurt. I can put them in cottage cheese. Like sometimes I just mix it into my food uh, or sometimes I'll just throw it in water and, and drink it. But I, I don't like to take a ton of pills. So I love anything in powder form and it just makes my stomach feel better, to be honest. Yeah. So there's a preference piece there. And I will say mm -hmm. that uh, Designs for Health and Thorn are professional lines, which means that they generally only sell to healthcare practitioners and they're yeah. third party tested and they're really good products. They have a really good reputation. Uh, but I, what I will say is that with the creation of Amazon, you can find these things on Amazon because essentially what will happen is healthcare practitioners who have access to these, they'll basically buy them in bulk and then sell them, create sell an them. Amazon, an online yeah. store and sell them. So you do have more access to them now. Um, the other thing I'll say from a fish oil standpoint, I'm a huge fan of Nordic Naturals for my omega-3s. I, I think that it's very important that the fish oil that you're getting is most companies are already doing this. Uh, it's sourced from small fish like mackerel, sardines, and anchovies because they have a shorter lifespan. They're much smaller. They accumulate less uh, toxins like heavy metals, uh, mercury, PCBs, things of that sort. 
Uh, the other thing that's important that I like about Nordic Nastrals is it's bottled at the source. So it's bottled where they catch it, which is very important because sometimes companies will have fish that comes from another country. It comes from like Chile or something like that. And then it's shipped over here and then they bottle it here. And by the time the fish gets here, it's rancid and it's, it's not good quality fat or oil anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're third party tested. They have an excellent reputation and the, you know, the percentages and the numbers of the ratios of EPA and DHA are great. So Nordic naturals is a company that I like for my omega threes and proteins, Nicole, you and I use different products. I like optimum nutrition, which I've been using their brand basically forever. Actually, the first mm-hmm. protein I ever had was, uh, designer way, which my 12th grade social studies teacher recommended to me and was absolutely disgusting. And then <laughs> protein started tasting better from that point on, like muscle milk mm-hmm. came out and like changed the industry. And then everyone had to kind of step their game up, but designer way is still around and it's disgusting. Um, but I do, <laughs> I do really like optimum nutrition. Uh, it's actually owned by Glambia, which is a cheese company. And what they do is they take the curds as they make the cheese and they have no waste product and they turn that into whey protein. They also own BSN. They also own Isopure, which is a really good protein too, a really good product, mm-hmm. um, good whey isolate. Uh, and Nicole, your protein choice would be? I love PE Science. That's my go-to protein. I love the flavors, taste delicious. And again, because I like powder form, I like I mix it in food. So I very rarely will I ever drink How do you mix it in food? Well, you take a scoop of the protein powder and you mix it in a yogurt. So if you have like a snickerdoodle protein flavor with a chocolate or coconut yogurt, it tastes delicious. I'm all about texture, flavor and taste. Like I, I very rarely will you ever see me just with a scoop of protein in water and just drinking it that way. Like I need to have texture to it. So. Yeah, for me, I think I'm a smoothie guy. So I get vanilla protein, mm-hmm. the French vanilla from Optimum nutrition is amazing. It's got a really good, rich vanilla flavor. And then I'll yeah. mix that with like berries or if I want to turn it to a chocolate, it's easy. I could just put a scoop of cocoa powder or something. Yeah, I like it mixed in my food. All right. And anything else for supplements, Nicole? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think those are the I think you and I, while we have different like you, I like powder form, you like pills. I like a little more sweeter protein powder. You may like something a little bit more neutral. I think it's personal preference, but those specific brands, I definitely support. And just a disclaimer, uh, we're not sponsored by any of these companies. We don't, or we're not getting paid to endorse no. them. So <laughs> it's just products that we like and products that we trust and recommend, would recommend to, would take ourselves yeah. and recommend to um, our clients and our listeners. Uh, and I, on that note, I appreciate you guys asking questions. We'll have to definitely do this again, Nicole. I think mm-hmm. this is, uh, is it made for a really good episode and, and I'm it's fun. glad, you know, I'm hoping, I hope we were able to answer your questions, uh, mm-hmm. and, and adequately. And if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week. 